There's a capacity for a, an openness, a very deep listening. Poem from William Stafford that describes the listening that doesn't judge or resist, but just opens. William Stafford, who was a, a great poet and a conscientious objector in World War II, spent some years in prison at that time and has always written about and stood, his life has stood for peace, no matter what, writes, This is the field where the battle did not happen, where the unknown soldier did not die. This is the field where grass joined hands, where no monument stands, and the only heroic thing is the sky. Birds fly here without any sound, unfolding their wings across the open. No people killed or were killed on this ground, hallowed by neglect and an air so tame that people celebrate it by forgetting its name. It's really a poem to that sacredness without conflict, the sacredness of opening, of spaciousness itself. I want to read a story as we begin to talk about this quality of attention and healing that can come when we make space to listen. The invitation of the Buddha to listen to the body, the feelings, the mind. This is a story I haven't told in a long time, but I love very much, written by Richard Selzer, who is a writer and also a surgeon at Yale University. On the bulletin board in the front hall of the hospital where I work, there appeared an announcement. Yeshe Dundon, it read, will make rounds at 6 o'clock on the morning of June 10th. Then it was noted, Yeshe Dundon is personal physician to the Dalai Lama. I'm not so leathery a skeptic that I would knowingly ignore such an emissary from the gods. And thus, on the morning of June 10th, I joined the clutch of white coats waiting in the small conference room adjacent to the ward selected for the rounds. The air in the room is heavy with ill-concealed dubiety and suspicion of bamboozlement. (laughs) After all, these were doctors at Yale. (laughs) At precisely 6 a.m. he materializes, a short, golden, barrelly man dressed in a sleeveless robe of saffron and maroon. His scalp is shaven, the only visible hair is a scanty black line above each hooded eye. He bows in greeting while his young interpreter makes the introduction. Yeshe Dundon, we are told, will examine a patient selected by a member of the staff The diagnosis is unknown to Yeshe Dundon as it is to us. The examination will take place in our presence, after which Yeshe Dundon will discuss the case. We're further informed that for the past two hours, Yeshe Dundon has prepared himself by bathing, fasting, and prayer. I begin to look at my life in a new way in this moment. Suddenly, we doctors seem a soiled, uncouth lot. The patient had been awakened early and told she was to be examined by a foreign doctor, had been asked to produce a specimen of urine, so when we enter her room, the woman shows no surprise. She has long ago taken on that mixture of compliance and resignation that is the face of chronic illness. 
this was to be yet another in an endless series of tests and examinations. Yeshe Dandan steps to the bedside while the rest stand apart. For a long time he gazes at the woman, favoring no part of her body with his eyes, but seeming to fix his glance at a pace just above her form. I too study her. There is no visible clue to the nature of her disease. At last he takes her hand, raising it in both of his own. He bends over in a kind of crouch, his head drawn down into his robe, his eyes closed as he feels for her pulse. And for the next half hour he remains thus, suspended above the patient like some exotic golden bird with folded wings, holding the pulse of the woman beneath his fingers. All the power of the man seems to have been drawn down to this one purpose. From the foot of the bed, where I stand, it is as though he and the patient have entered a special place of isolation, of apartness about which a vacancy hovers and across which no violation is possible. After a moment, the woman rests back on her pillow, and from time to time she raises her head to look at the strange finger, figure above her, then sinks back. I cannot see their hands joined in a correspondence that is intimate, where he receives the voice of her sick body through the rhythm and throb she offers at her wrist. Yet all at once I am envious, not of him, not of Yeshe Dundon for his gift of beauty and holiness, but of her. I want to be held like that, touched so, received so deeply, and I know that I, who have palpated thousands of pulses, have not felt truly a single one. At last, Yeshe Dundon straightens up, gently places the woman's hand back on the bed and steps back. He takes a small bowl into which the urine specimen is placed, whips the liquid with two sticks, raises the bowl and inhales to smell its odor. He sets it down and acknowledges the woman once more, then turns to leave. As he nears the door, she calls out, thank you, doctor, in a voice both urgent and serene, and touches with her other hand the place he had held on her wrist. Yeshe Dundon turns back once more to gaze at her smiling, rounds her at an end. Now we are seated in the conference room. He begins to speak in soft Tibetan. The interpreter begins to translate the two voices, a bilingual fugue, one chasing the other, like the chanting of monks. He speaks of winds coursing through the body of the woman, currents that break against barriers, eddying. The vortices are in her blood, she says, the last spendings of an imperfect heart. Between the chambers of the heart, long, long before she was born, a wind had come and blown open a deep gate that must never be opened. Through it charged the full waters of her river as the mountain stream cascades, battering loose the land, flooding her breath. Thus he speaks and now is silent. May we have the diagnosis, the professor asked. The host of these rounds, the man who knows, answers. Congenital heart disease, he says, interventricular septal defect with resultant heart failure. A gateway in the heart, I think, that must not be opened. 
since birth and before, through it charges the full waters that flood her breath. So, here then is the doctor listening to the sounds of the body to which the rest of us are deaf. He is more than doctor, he is priest. I know the doctor to the gods is pure knowledge, pure healing, while the doctor to man stumbles, must often wound, his patient will die as he must. And now and then it happens, as I make my own rounds, that I hear the sound of his voice, like an ancient Buddhist prayer, its meaning long since forgotten, only the music remaining. And then a jubilation possesses me, and I feel myself touched as if by something divine. I believe when I read and listen to this story, because it touches me, that all of us, or most of us, have the same longing to be held so, to be received, to be listened to so deeply, to listen to the world in that way. And the world around us, our family, our garden, our co-workers, the prisoners, the laborers, the managers, all of those around us, I think too would love to be received and listened in that way. And Yeshe Dandan in this story shows the power of this listening heart that even in the face of such great truths as illness, impermanence, suffering, and even death, that it's possible to listen with a kind of compassion and wisdom that's greater than those. I spent some time with a friend in this last week or so who started her rounds of chemotherapy for breast cancer that had spread into other parts of her body. And it was a very difficult time for her because she had a strong reaction to the chemotherapy. We did a kind of healing meditation in which she visualized lying there after having been so sick from this stuff that they put into her body, chemotherapy, visualized a healing temple where she could feel her body wanting to heal and receiving beautiful energy. But as she started to visualize the healing temple, her face became very alarmed. And she said, I can't see or feel a healing temple. I feel fire and flames and incredible suffering. And it feels more like the hell realms than a healing temple. What am I to do? And I said, well, rest in the flames and let them burn up the cancer as the, ke- the chemicals that have been put into your body are supposed to do. Let them be a purifying fire and see what happens if you remain in what has been given to you. And she lay there resting in that, which was not an easy thing. It was a frightening thing to do. And after some time, a short time or a long time, because time really isn't what matters in these things, there came this beautiful light 
that started to shine through the flames, green and white, and with it this incredible healing spirit. But it could only come to her because she let herself rest where she was in those flames. So when we bring attention to this human life, the invitation of the Buddha, this attention asks us to find a trust, a trust in the capacity of our hearts, the capacity of our spirit, a kind of humility or openness, to be with all that is given us and to allow the healing that is natural to this world to take place, because it will if we bring our attention to it. There's a kind of alchemy to healing, if you will. Eventually, excuse me, especially in this time of managed care, says Lauren Slatter, especially in this time of managed care, more emphasis seems to be placed upon medication and the quick amelioration of symptoms, short-term work, and privatized profit-making clinics than upon the lovely and mysterious alchemy that comprises the healing cords within and around our bodies, the cords that soothe our terrors and help us be whole. This mysterious alchemy of healing that takes place through our attention. So the Buddha then invites our attention in these areas of life. First in the body, the body in the body is his phrase. And if we look uh, in a kind of uninformed way, we discover that our relationship to our body is, also, is often either to identify with it and be afraid for it and grasp and not want it to be sick and not want it to age and kind of to, to kind of um, struggle in that way to make it somehow better, more perfect, different than it is, fear for it. Or the other side is to ignore it, to disassociate. Remember the line, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body that quality of not being present with ourselves. So as we begin meditation, each time we sit, there is this invitation from the Buddha to find healing and freedom within this fathom-long body, the body within the body. And we begin with its breath, just the repetition of breathing in and out breathing in and out, letting the breath breathe, and then thoughts come and feelings come, and we allow ourselves to feel that breath in the midst of it all, to relax into the breathing, to rest in the breath, to train ourselves breath by breath, to just be present and open. And it's amazing training, because when you've trained yourself to be with the breath, then whether you are playing tennis or making love whether you're sitting with someone who's being born or someone who's dying, there's this capacity, breath by breath, to be present. But to do this, to open with the breath, also requires a tenderness. Robert Bly puts it this way, the heart is a place of tenderness. The cultivated heart requires intensification 
of this tenderness. If we are to cultivate this capacity for presence, it means deepening the sense of tenderness, the ability to hold this human body with its pleasures and its pains, with kindness, with compassion. How else will it heal? How else will it open? And how have we touched this body? So we sit and pain comes and our habit is to contract. All the tensions we carry arise. You know the tensions. You just sat for a little bit. You could feel the shoulders and the back and the jaw and all the rest of that. And not just from the day, but from the month or the year or the decade. And we like to kind of skip over them, kind of keep ourselves moving and running. But of course, at some point, they demand our attention. As Alice Miller says, the truth about our childhood is stored up in our body. And although we can repress it, we can never alter it. Our intellect can be deceived, our feelings manipulated, our conceptions confused, and our body tricked with medication. But someday our body will present its bill, for it is as incorruptible as a child who, still whole in spirit, will accept no compromise or excuse and will not stop tormenting us until we stop evading its truth. So we sit and we feel what the body has to teach us, its pains, its pleasures, how we grasp the pleasures and fear and contract around the pains and ignore what's not pleasant or painful. And we learn to breathe, ah, and let the breath be like space, a kind of healing space, to touch with love and openness what we have touched with fear or confusion or ignored. This passage from an old Catholic monk, when I interviewed, he said, I came from a poor white family where we drank and lived hard. The men treated the body like a truck that you used and ignored. In the church, it got worse. I hated to deal with my body. I lived on coffee, then on scotch. Gradually, as I looked at the simple people who came to talk to me and saw how many tortured bodies there were, as well as tortured souls, my faith and love got past all those stupid teachings about sin and the body you find in the church. It doesn't have to be so hard. I realized that Christ taught I had to love my enemy. So I took a vow of nonviolence, and this included my body. My practice became, do not torment myself. Do not escalate the pain. I began to teach it to others. It turned into a practice of gratitude. I get up in the morning, and the care of my body is where I start. It's poignant how simple it is. And so we begin to re-inhabit the body and to feel the pleasure and the pain, the breath, the aging, the reality of the way our body is and to hold it with compassion. And that itself is healing. To listen like Dr. Dundon, listen to that patient, to touch her wrist, to bring that kind of attention to this human body. 
Don't change your posture, but just let your eyes close for a moment, just as you're sitting. And with your eyes closed, feel the places in your body that carry the most tension or pain. And notice how you've touched them before. And sense if you can find a space of tenderness as if you were holding a child, a space of compassion and ease that allows the sensations, the tension, the pain, the vibration, the pleasure, whatever's there, just to open any way it wants. It might get stronger, it might move, it might turn into fire or throbbing, it might become easy and sweet. Feel what it's like to be with the body energies as they open in a spacious and healing way. You're not trying to fix anything, just to let it open as it will. And as you feel deep in the body, there will be hardness and softness, the bones and the fluids. There'll be heat and cool and contraction and expansion, the earth of the body, the air, the water, the life of the body. Let it show itself within your attention and breathe and make space for it all. And even when the body ages or gets sick or prepares to die, which it will, it is possible to be with this precious and vulnerable human body with compassion and respect and a healing spirit no matter what. It's really a deep training. We just did it for a moment and there's something intuitive in us that knows this space of openness and healing. But to learn to embody it and live it is actually why one undertakes a meditation retreat or a meditation practice. To discover that freedom, that openness that's possible no matter what happens within this body. And what it does when we pay attention to this human body is it then opens us naturally to a care for the body of the earth. Strawberries are too delicate to be picked by machine. The perfectly ripe ones bruise it even too heavy a human touch. Every strawberry you've ever eaten, every piece of fruit has been picked by calloused human hands 
Every piece of toast with jelly, every glass of wine represents someone's knees, someone's aching back and hips, someone with a bandana on her wrist to wipe away the sweat. When we begin to respect and listen to this body and the senses and the food we place into it and the movement and the community of living beings that we interact with, it connects us with the body of this earth itself, herself. So that the attention, the Buddha talked about it this way, he said, go out into nature. Feel the seasons, the woods, the forests, the oceans, the ancestors from which you came. And live your life wisely in the seasons of nature. Rachel Carson, long ago, wrote, A child's world is fresh and new and beautiful, full of wonder and excitement. It is our misfortune that for most of us that clear-eyed vision, that true instinct, for what is beautiful and awe-inspiring is dimmed and lost before we reach adulthood. If I had influence with the good fairy who is supposed to preside over the christening of children, I should ask that her gift to each child in the world be a sense of wonder so indestructible it would last throughout life as an unfailing antidote to all that would steal it from us. The true instinct to keep what is beautiful, alive. So this again is the invitation of awareness, not only our bodies, but the earth and the beings of the earth. Because then we see whether it's the environmental difficulties or the continuing loss of species or racism or warfare, the sorrows around us not as separate, but also as part of our body to tend to and to discover compassion for. Then the Buddha goes on. He says, just as we establish awareness of this body in the body, from this basis of embodied attention, we can be aware of the stream of feelings that come, the feelings in the feelings. Don Juan put it this way. He said, the most difficult part about the sorcerer's way is to realize that the world is a feeling. Kind of mysterious, isn't it? But it means something to reflect about. What is healing and liberating in the relation to feelings? We live from feelings, from our loves and our hates and our fears and our confusions. They motivate us, they move us through our life. The first task is simply to know them to bring the quality of healing attention to know all the different feelings that arise. I read on retreats this list of sometimes from 500 feelings. Affectionate, ambitious, ambivalent, amused, antagonistic, antsy, apathetic, appreciative, argumentative, blissful, brokenhearted, calm, cheerful, claustrophobic, compassionate, concentrated, concerned, curious, contracted, delighted, depressed, disheartened, driven, ebullient, fearful, frightened, hateful, honored, humble, hysterical, glad, gluttonous, grateful, grave, greedy, jovial, jealous, joyful, 
pleased, pissed off, prudish, sad, silly, sleepy, sober, spacious, sympathetic. You could go on and on. It's amazing, this feeling life. And it's first just to know them. I mean, when I came back from the monastery where I'd been living very peacefully for some years in Asia, got involved in this relationship with a woman that I had known before. Um, I discovered first that a lot of feelings were coming up that I hadn't noticed in the monastery. (laughs) Intimate relationships (laughs) made it a lot more difficult. But then she would say, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to go out and have Chinese food or should we go to Italian food? And I said, oh, I don't care. It doesn't matter. You know, or should we spend the weekend at home or should we go out walking in the country? And I'd say, yeah, I'd think to myself, I'm a monk, I don't care, what, you know, whatever they put in the begging bowl, whatever, say whatever you like. That, that worked for about a week or two. <laughs> then she said, you know, you are driving me crazy. She said, and I don't think this is some great Buddhist attainment you have. You really didn't know what you felt before you went in the monastery and apparently it didn't help you afterwards. <laughs> got me a little notebook and said, every day I want you to write down ten things that you have some feelings about. And just get to know your feelings. You understand? So the first thing is just to realize, and I see it on retreats. People will come in and I'll say, they'll have the experience, I'll say, what are you feeling? And they say, I don't know. What are you feeling just now? I'm not so sure. There's a kind of emotional intelligence with this capacity to feel that comes through our listening like Yeshe Dandan to that pulse, to feel the pulse of our feelings. C.S. Lewis, when he looked inside, said he found a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, um, a nursery of fears, and a harem of fondled hatreds. You know? <laughs> I mean, look at there, it's amazing. Now often people hear Buddhism and the Dalai Lama talks about afflictive emotions and what do you do with greed and aggression and jealousy and, and, and anger and fear and so forth. Um, but it's pretty straightforward and simple actually. You see, awakening to the emotions means to feel them. Nothing more and nothing less. It doesn't require changing the feelings because feelings change all the time on their own. You understand? It's seeing them for what they are and allowing them to rise and fall. We only fear the destructive power of our emotions when we haven't seen them for what they really are. We confuse allowing ourselves to be aware of them with the necessity to act them out. What we need to see is the body of fear that we've been identified with and discover the freedom of awareness that is beyond and embraces the space around all the feelings that rise and pass away. Or William Blake, who put it this way, Joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine. Under every grief and pine runs a joy with silken twine. It is right it should be so. Man was made for joy and woe. And when this we rightly know, through the world we safely go. So simple. It is the truth of our experience. Joy and sorrow, praise and blame, birth and death, light and dark, 
sweet and sour. Anybody have any other experience? It's how it is. And the healing in relation to feelings is to let what needs to be felt be honored, to bow to them. And sometimes when we sit, it's the unfinished business, it's the tears. It's the grief that we've carried for so long in a culture that's forgotten how to grieve, except maybe at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, one of the few places where you can stand and see grown men weep in public. And yet, without grieving, we can't let go and move on. From Ghalib, the Sufi poet, for the raindrop joy is entering the river, travel far enough into sorrow, and tears turn into sighing. When, after heavy rain, the storm clouds disperse, is it not that they've wept themselves to the end? So when we sit in meditation, it is bow to, it is to find the space that can bow to the broken heart and the needy heart, to the anger at injustice, to the joy, because some of us are frightened of joy and the ecstasy of life, to our restlessness and our peacefulness. And the image that the Buddha gives is if you take a tablespoon of salt and put it in a cup of water, it will be terribly salty. It won't taste very good. But if you take that tablespoon of salt and put it in a pond or a lake, you won't notice it at all. And if as we sit and listen, like our fingers to the pulse of our feelings, and make the heart spacious and wide, then the feelings of our tears and the feelings of beauty, the places we need to forgive, and the longings and the excitement and the love, all can rise and pass, held in a great space of compassion. This is our human life. And it's there where wisdom grows. It's here. The invitation to be with this body and listen to it, to be with our feelings without being lost in each one or suppressing them, to make the space of heart to know our feelings and then respond. To see the mind as it is, with the mind to observe the mind, is the phrase, the mind in the mind. And usually we take our mind to be our thoughts, that stream of images and words. Muriel Ruckheiser, the poet, put it this way. She said, The universe is made of stories, not atoms. Or Marcus Aurelius who wrote, The soul becomes dyed with the color of its thoughts. So we repeat these stories over and over and over again, and then we believe them. The stories of fear. You remember that line I use all the time from Mark Twain, where he said, My life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. Right? The kind of pessimistic stories. Or optimism. No need for a medical checkup. No need just because the oil light came on in my dash. It'll be all right. I don't have to pay attention to it. And if we look just as feelings rise and fall, and usually we get caught and lost in them when we're not spacious and attentive, so the stories come and go with every possibility, better and worse, and praise and blame. So much of the stories. 
Let me see. Here it is. It's a passage on stories. Yeah. We participate endlessly in the creation of our stories. We can enact the personal myths of warrior, goddess, eternal adolescent, great mother, king or queen, master, slave, or servant of the divine. Is our life a story of riches or poverty, inwardly or outwardly? Are we the victim, the lost soul, the one who suffers, the prodigal son, the conqueror, the workhorse, the mediator, the nurturer, or the sage? By what story have we chosen to live our life? Usually what happens is these two are unconscious. We're not aware of the mind. And so we get blinded by the thoughts. We take them to be real, and the conflicts in them become real. My teacher Nisargadot put it this way. He said, the mind creates the abyss, and the heart crosses it. That is, the mind in its thoughts separates us. It analyzes, it plans, and all those things are useful. But do we take our thoughts seriously? Do you really think you know anything terribly important? Like who you are, where you came from, what love is, what's the purpose of life, what is consciousness? Um, You know, even you know what this what what this body is. I mean, we we have we have some notions of it, but the big questions nobody has an answer to. So the mind's useful. You you can use your intellect to plan, to organize things, to analyze things. But beyond that, if you take your opinions very seriously, you will suffer, and worse, the people around you will suffer more. Right? <laughs> So the invitation from the Buddha is just to see the mind as it is, to take its pulse, to see its patterns, to see the stream of opinions of better and worse and comparison and judgment and, and so forth, and see that it's really out of our control. It's just kind of, it's a thought factory. It is. It spews out thoughts, right? It's kind of like a... I don't know, sometimes I describe it as a pasta factory. One <laughs> substance in all these different shapes, flat and round. So the thoughts come out, it's all the same, it secretes thoughts, right? <laughs> and of course you can train the mind, you can quiet it a little bit, you can purify it, you can make slightly better thoughts. But in the end, it's just going to keep thinking. <laughs> it does it, it's what it does. You know, your heart beats, your, your lungs breathe, and your mind thinks. It's kind of what it does. So the healing of the mind is first to see it for what it is, to bow to it, say, okay, it will do anything. It has no pride. It can tell any story. (laughs) To not get lost in it, but instead to shift from the mind into the heart, to rest in the eternal present and say, there's a story. There's a good story. There's a bad story. There's one of guilt. There's one of jealousy. There's one of tension. There's one of ambition. There's one of love. There's one of fear, there's one of excitement or creativity. And to bow to those thoughts, to see them as they are, but to rest in the space of awareness and compassion, to rest in the heart itself. 
Thomas Merton says, there is in all things an inexhaustible sweetness and purity, a silence that is a fountain of action and joy. It rises up in wordless gentleness and flows out to me from the unseen roots of all creation. And all that I am asked to do is to listen to it. This is the kind of deep listening like Yeshe Dandan. So when we begin to meditate, we step out of the busyness of our thoughts. They're still there into the space of mind and the compassion of the heart that can allow that and say, here we are, this too, this too. O nobly born, O you who are the son and daughter of the Buddha, it says in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the visions that arise exist within your own consciousness. The forms they take are determined by your past attachments, your past desires, your past fears and karma. These visions have no reality outside your own consciousness. No matter how frightening or enticing they may seem, they cannot harm you. Let them rise and fall as they will. Let go into the clear light behind them. Trust it. Merge with it. It is your own true nature. It is home. We all know the experience of being completely caught up in some conflict, being at war with the way things were supposed to have been, the way another person's supposed to be, the way the world is supposed to be, and fighting and struggling and so forth, completely caught up, or guilty or sad or whatever it happens to be. And then there's a moment where you wake up and you say, wow, I'm really in this one, aren't I? Really lost in this one. And the moment we wake up, it's as if there's a little breath that goes, ah, something bigger, some space around it. Close your eyes just as you're sitting where you are for a moment. Don't change your posture, just the eyes closed. And be aware of the kinds of thoughts that played through the space of mind today. Feel your breath and body around those thoughts, let it open. And sense the healing attention of the heart that can let those thoughts, plans and memories, fears and ambitions rise and fall and rest in the ground of being underneath them, the quiet mind, the open heart. It's always here. The Buddhist texts speak about meditation as like visiting the circus inside or learning to be like an elephant pricked by a pin, that the thoughts will come and let the thoughts disappear. And we can rest in the space of attention that is respectful and timeless, place of peace.
the body in the body, the feelings in the feelings, seeing the mind in the mind, and the dharma in the dharma. The dharma means the truth, the law, the way things are. To see this is to see the value of space itself, the healing of emptiness. Zhuangzu, the Taoist sage, put it this way. He said, a drunken man who falls out of a cart, though he may suffer, does not die. His bones are the same as other people's, but he meets his accident in a different way. His spirit is in a condition of security. He's not conscious of riding in the cart, neither is he conscious of falling out of it. The ideas of life, death, fear, and the like cannot penetrate his breast, and so he does not suffer from contact with objective existence. If such security is to be gotten from wine, how much more is it to be gotten from the spirit itself? And so again, the invitation from the Buddha is for that security to open. Every time we pay attention, we become emptier. And the more empty we are, the greater the healing space that we can offer. The center of the Buddha's awakening on his night of enlightenment under the Bodhi tree was that liberation of the openness of heart. He sat and saw that this human life has suffering, pleasure and pain and birth and death, And that life is difficult. And the fact that it's difficult is its nature and not the fact that you're doing it wrong. It's a relief, isn't it, to know that? That that's the way that it is. It's also precious and beautiful and wondrous and incredible. And difficult. It's just the way it is. He also saw that it's always changing, a river. No days are alike, no moments are alike. Nothing can ever be repeated. Don't even try. It doesn't work. It's always new. And when he saw this, he let go. He opened into that space of heart and mind that's timeless. He let go of the possessiveness of the small sense of self, of the body of fear. And there came this shift of identity that we can all make in a moment. A bear paced up and down the 20-foot length of its cage. When, after 15 years, the cage was removed, the bear continued to pace up and down the 20-foot length of the cage as if the bars were still there. We live in the repetitive patterns of the small sense of self of the body of fear, and yet it is not who we really are. To pay attention, we discover that the body isn't us. We rent it, we get to use it, we get to care for it. That the feelings come and go like changes of the seasons. That the mind has every possibility and will show itself. But that who we are is deeper and greater and freer than all of that. You remember the story of Mullah Nasruddin when he goes into the bank to cash a check, the old Sufi sage and fool, 
And they say, could you please identify yourself? And he reaches in his pocket and pulls out the small mirror, looks in it and said, yep, that's me, all right. <laughs> we are who we tell we s- ourselves we are. That's who we think we are. But it's not the reality. Inner peace, says the Dalai Lama, is the key. If you find this space of inner peace, the external problems will not affect your deep sense of compassion and tranquility. And so again, the invitation, O nobly born, is to take your seat on the earth and rest in the true nature of mind, which is open and timeless, naked, immaculate, being of the voidness, containing all things, yet not limited by them. It's mysterious. Life appears and disappears. It changes every day around us. And when we remember the mystery, we breathe. When we remember the mystery, we come back to a kind of wisdom. What is life? It is the flash of a firefly in the night. It is the breath of a buffalo in wintertime. It is the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. A poem from Crowfoot a hundred years ago. Or the Hindu child who says in the womb, do not let me forget who I am. And the song changes after birth, oh dear, I'm forgetting already. In each of us is a longing for wholeness, connectedness, freedom, joy. The discovery of that, the discovery of that wholeness, the great heart of compassion, our own true nature, is always waiting for us. And it asks only one thing, that kind of listening, the listening of Yeshe Dandan, feeling the pulse of that woman, listening so deeply he could feel the whole play of her life from her birth showing itself under his fingers. We have within us as human beings that same wondrous and beautiful freedom, that same capacity to listen. And meditation is an invitation to us to listen in this way to our bodies, to our hearts, to the earth around us, to the nature of mind, and to that space of freedom within which it all arises and passes away. We come to a place like Spirit Rock, many of us, simply to be reminded that our hearts can find peace, 
that there is healing and that the natural beauty of your heart, your own Buddha nature, wants to shine forth. And all it asks is your deep listening and respectful attention. Let's just sit for one more minute and do a little chant and then go out into the night. And that simple sound, ah, ah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.